I don't know what you all like to watch on television, but one of the things that my wife and I like to do, this is usually when we can't find anything else on TV, but is to watch uh, these CNN documentaries. I don't know if you've seen those. They cover different decades. They, they've done one on the 60s. They've done one on the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And uh, often they deal with major events in history that have shaped us as a culture. And uh, oftentimes, not only do they deal with elections and political um, uh, events, but they even discuss the change in media, change from music and, and television, and even how that has affected um, how we view and understand the world. And in reflection upon kind of how TV has changed, um, with the 80s, it was, um, that was like the boom of the sitcom. We've had television shows, but it just came to a, a whole new level. And, it, and from then, uh, TV shows have been trying to push the envelope in various ways and capacities. And, and really, that has been a major um, shaper of our culture um, since the 80s. Well, as I was reflecting on this, and, and, and they haven't done one on the 2000s, at least I haven't seen one yet, but it's interesting noting just the change that occurred in the late 90s to the 2000s, and that we moved to the it's never going to end type TV show. You know what I'm talking about? Uh, the one that you, you see the first one, and it leaves you hanging, and you're like, how am I going to make it to the next week? And then you go to the next one, and it it answers your question only to open up more questions and it keeps you reeled in and then it's the season finale and you think you're going to have some satisfaction and no you have to wait till next year to get the the answer well you could say that luke has adopted that kind of approach um, to the last part of the book of acts it's the story that just keeps on going um, and, and, and leaves us with, uh, with what's the next event, and, 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 and we get a recap, and, and we're going to revisit the, the scenario, get the episodes taken care of, and then we're, we're going to push forward just a little bit more, and you'll have to come next week to get the rest of it. Well, with that in mind, I, I'm going to give a, a bit of a summary of last week's episode, or at least the episodes leading up to chapters 25 and 26 where we left off last Sunday and at the end of chapter 24 is that um, Paul has defended his uh, case of being charged as a terrorist, as one opposing um, Roman law, but even of, of the Jewish nation itself. And, and Paul has stood before Felix, the governor. But at the end of that, uh, I guess, defense, verse 27 says it was two years later. You can imagine maybe watching the television show and, and it goes to a new scene and you see at the bottom two years later. Well, Paul is in the same spot. He's in jail, but there is a new governor and this governor's name is Porcus Festus. Uh, interesting name. And, uh, and he is now the new leader. And Paul's enemies, his nemeses, have come back and they think we can, we can try this case again. We've got a new governor and we can try to get Paul this, well, this one more time. And as you recall, last week uh, they had hired the hammer. They had hired Tertullus, the, the defense attorney, who could come in and he could seal the deal on any case uh, and, and get you your money's worth. 
Well, he failed. He was unable to get a conviction. He was not able to produce the evidence. And so um, the Jews have resorted to their previous tactics. And you can see in verse 2 of chapter 25 that they urged Festus, asking a favor that he would summon him to Jerusalem. Why? Because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. We're not going to be able to do this uh, in a civilized manner, so we're going to have to uh, 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 turn to uncivilized tactics. Well, Festus does not allow that. And just to give you a summary of what's going on here in chapter 25, Paul again stands before uh, Festus and, and his accusers in Caesarea, and it is the same old song and dance. Paul, you are guilty of speaking against this, our God, our people, our nation, and you have spoken against Caesar. And Paul gets up and says, there's no proof to these accusations. Um, this is nonsense. Well, Festus is in a bind. Because he's a new ruler, and he needs to impress those who are his superiors in the Roman Empire. And so he needs to treat this prisoner, who's a Roman citizen, with respect. But his jurisdiction, like Felix, is over Judea and the region of Caesarea, and he has to appeal to these Jews. And so he's trying to walk a fine line of, of, of appealing to both sides of the parties. And so he says to, to Paul, Verse 9, wishing to do with Jews a favor, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? Kind of say, hey, I'll, I'll be the judge of the case and, and we'll, we'll go down to Jerusalem and we can kind of appeal appease both parties. But Paul says, no, I am in a Roman court and a Roman court's where I need to be and so I appeal to Caesar. And so Festus in verse 12 says, to Caesar you have appealed to Caesar you shall go. Well, you might say, okay, all right, we're finally getting somewhere in this story. But no, no drama is ever that simple. We have to have uh, other episodes uh, and, and trying to, you know, there's the hope that they're going to get to the place that they're trying to go. But then there's other people who get involved on the journey and it takes longer than expected. And we're introduced to another individual. And this is King Agrippa. And Festus seeks his advice. Verse 13, now the some days had passed and Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived in Caesarea and greeted Festus. Festus has a problem. Paul's a Roman citizen. I need to honor his request of appeal to Caesar, but I don't know on what grounds I need to tell Caesar that I'm sending him this prisoner. And so he talks it over with Agrippa, and, and by verse 22, Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. And so Festus says, I can do that for you. Tomorrow you will hear from Paul. And so Paul is preparing to go on trial in some sense again before Agrippa. And what we see here in verse 25, or chapter 25 is the rationale of the government leaders for how they're going to deal with Paul. But for Paul and for us this morning, and if you're not paying attention, wake up because here's where the kind of the kicker is. This, for Paul, was not another defense. Rather, this was opportunity. This was opportunity for him to bear witness to Christ and evangelize these rulers, particularly King Agrippa. 
Paul understood what Jesus had said in Luke 21, when Jesus says, Before all this, they will lay, on, they will lay their hands on you, persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. And Jesus says, This will be your opportunity to bear witness. So what does Paul do? How does he take care of this opportunity? Maybe you have had opportunities this week, or you are looking forward to the week ahead, and you're thinking of opportunities that may present themselves for you to bear witness to Christ, and you might be struggling. What, what am I going to do? How am I going to fulfill my duty as an evangelist? We look at Paul, and we see what he's going to do here in this passage And I think this will prove helpful for us, providing an example of how one may go about an effective evangelism. I'm often asked, I've had numerous people come down after some of these sermons and and say, yeah, Chase, but but I'm not like you preachers. Um, I don't know the Bible inside and out. And and I'll I'll tell you, hey, I'm trying to learn the Bible inside and out, but I'm I'm not there either. They say, well, I'm not gifted. I don't, have, I, don't, I don't know what to say. Or how do I start up that conversation without being contentious? I, I'm, I'm kind of uh, blunt when it comes to conversations. And I don't want to be abrupt. And I don't want to catch people off guard. Or sometimes people say, you know, I'm trying to live out my Christian life before them, my testimony. But, but I don't think I'm coming through. And I know I need to speak something, but I don't know what to say. This morning, we're going to see that Paul uses a different tactic than he's done in some of the other episodes. And this tactic is going to be by sharing his testimony. He's going to give his testimony, not as necessarily a defense, though he will call it that, but it's different than these other times he stood before rulers. This time it has a particular tone and and, and slant to it, that he may evangelize those who are listening to him. See, sharing your testimony is something that every genuine Christian should be able to do. You might say, well, what's my testimony? Testimony is simply sharing your story of how you came to faith in Christ. And as we're about to see, you can see, you can use this story to introduce others to the Savior. In fact, this is my go-to means almost 95% of the time. I don't really have an exact quota, but it's my 99% I use testimony is the means by which I share the gospel. Because whether I'm on an airplane or I'm striking up a conversation with someone or I want to share with a family member or friend, I find that the easiest way to break the ice is sharing my testimony. And this is exactly what Paul does. And so this morning, we're going to examine three components of a Christian testimony so that you, too, like Paul, we could learn how we might be able to be more effective in sharing Christ. And these aspects of sharing your testimony could, could look up like this. Number one, describe your prior life in, uh, to Christ, meaning your life before you knew Christ. Number two, describe how you met Christ. And number three, describe what your life is like now, having come to know Christ. And as we keep those things in mind, we're going to see that this is exactly what Paul does. 
And so if you would, we're going to spend most of our time, or all of our time, in chapter 26, verses 2 through the end of the chapter, where Paul has been given um, his chance to make a defense, to bear witness. And I've broken up this this passage into three points to kind of mirror what a testimony might look like. And, and, and the first way that uh, you, if you're taking notes, you can think of it this way, our life devoid of Christ. That's what Paul describes in verses 4 through 11. He describes his life devoid of Christ. And, and if you look, let's go to verse 4. He says, my manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. He begins by sharing his upbringing. Let me tell you a little about about myself. Let me tell you uh, my religious heritage. He says, even this nation, those people here, you, you know for a long time, if they're willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I lived as a Pharisee. Paul was part of the strictest sect of Judaism, known as the Pharisees, by which they would, they would try to keep the law perfectly to a T. And, and their thought process was that if we could keep every component of the law, we could be righteous and we could usher in the Messiah. The Christ would come if we could turn the nation around, that the only reason the Messiah hasn't come is because we as a people have turned from Him. And so this was a group seeking to live according to the law perfectly. But Paul goes on in verses 9 through 11 and he describes, but let me tell you about the true nature of my soul. He doesn't just, move, he, he doesn't just stick to the generalities, hey, I grew up in a Christian home. Of course, Paul didn't, but I'm thinking of this from our perspective. I didn't just grow up in a religious home. Let me get a little bit deeper about what was in my heart. And he says in verse 9, he says, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I oppose Jesus. I, was, I wasn't exactly like you see me now. I used to hate Jesus. Let me tell you what I did, verse 10. I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. I oversaw the execution of innocent people. Verse 11, and I punished them often in the synagogues And I tried to make them blaspheme. Just think about that. We know the story of Paul. He's given a summary. But he would go from town to town to town. He would enter the synagogue. Who is of the way? And as he would see maybe people uh, scuttering off, trying to hide after them, take them. But it wouldn't just go that, let's imprison them, let's take them back, let's try them and kill them. No, let's mock them. Let's try to make them blaspheme. And the idea here is let's try to make them deny Christ. And there's a sense in which Paul says, and I got joy of it. And I did this even to foreign cities in a raging fury against them. I was a madman. 
I was consumed with anger and fury. And Paul is taking opportunity that he hasn't done this exactly the same way. And he's highlighting what it looked like in his particular life, in his story, what it was to live apart from Christ in the life of Paul. Elsewhere in 1 Timothy chapter 1, he he gives his testimony, but in a more positive sense. But it's interesting how he describes himself. And in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 13, he describes himself as a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an opponent. He goes on in verse 16 and says, he even considered himself the foremost of sinners. Now there's much for us to learn here. Paul's giving a description of his life devoid of Christ, and as he does so, he's very specific about who he was. And brothers and sisters, when we're thinking about sharing our testimony with people, and you're talking about your life prior to Christ, use biblical language to describe it. Use language to highlight the nature of sin. And you can do it in your own life. Use yourself as an example, a living illustration. This were, these were the types of thoughts that would go through my head. These are the types of things that I would pursue. So what, what, what is biblical language to use when we're describing sin? Because oftentimes, especially in our culture, you talk about sin, people don't really know what that means. They think of mistakes. Or, or, or just um, uh, uh, stumbling blocks. But listen to how Paul describes the works of the flesh. How do you describe sin elsewhere? This, this comes from Galatians chapter 5, 19 through 21. You don't need to turn there. But Paul uses language like this. He says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. When I read that list, I see myself. Do you see you? Did you hear your sins? Maybe you're not all those. But certainly, if you're a believer, you heard, yes, I, I was that. Or I still struggle with things such as these. We need to talk about our life devoid of Christ with terms like these. Now, you might be saying, well, what about me? I, I, I came to Christ at an early age. I didn't engage in things like these Well, you might not have, and I I pray that that is the case for most of us, but I know it isn't. But I I think of our next generation of of children coming up through this church. I I pray that that most of this list doesn't uh, describe them. But there are certain things that describe all people because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And you can still speak to the fact that you were a, a sinner, you were born a sinner, and that you were prideful, that you were self-righteous, that you experienced jealousy and strife and disobedience to your parents. I mean, we've had testimonies every quarter, and usually we, we have a mixture, right, of different stories. Some people came to 
Christ later in life, and, and they might more readily uh, list that list of sins. But then there's those stories that are uh, just as glorious, just as powerful, where, where someone says, you know what, my parents shared the gospel with me. And you'll hear them say, you know what, I don't really remember exactly all that was going through my mind, but I can look back on my life now with a greater understanding, and yes, I could see these things. See, when we make ourselves the example of the awful nature of sin, this is the positive outcome that comes when you're sharing the gospel. We guard ourselves from the charge of being holier than thou, right? You see how this can present a a better opportunity, a better conversation when you are the negative example. But here's what will happen as you're sharing that story and you're being very specific about what was going on in your own mind, in your own heart. And maybe you're, you're sharing with a friend that you participated in those things with. You're in a very real sense exposing their own heart and their own mind and they're probably sitting there saying, yeah, I'm like you. I'm like you. Well, Paul goes on. He not only describes his life devoid of Christ, but in his testimony he describes his life derailed by Christ. Derailed by Christ. And this comes in verse 12. And, and he's describing how he's continuing in this life of sin. This was the path I was on. And in verse 12, in this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. But at midday, O king, you see how he, he starts engaging the conversation. He's talking to Agrippa. Put your name there of the person you're talking to. He says, I saw on the way a light from heaven. What a bright light that must have been. At midday, that's when the sun is at its brightest, but there was an even brighter light, Paul says, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul describes this was the moment when I was confronted by Jesus. He begins to see, show how his life got rattled because he met the risen Savior. And notice what Jesus says to him. Saul, Saul, verse 14, it's, why are you persecuting me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, I'm a city boy. I had no idea what goads were. Now, some of you are probably like, yep, you haven't been around the block enough, Chase. But for those of you who are like me, living in ignorance till I came across this text, a goad is a stick with a sharp point by which uh, shepherds or farmers will prod their cattle along by poking them. And if they kick, they'll literally hit their heel against it, and it's pointless for them to keep kicking against the goad. And they must be driven to the point that they're being led. When Jesus says, this is what I've been doing with you, Paul. You've thought you're in control of your life. You thought you had a way. No, I'm derailing your way, and you're now going my way. You are under my control now, Paul. 
Paul was literally knocked off his donkey. His whole life is being rattled. And he is describing for Agrippa this powerful encounter with the risen Jesus. And this is consistent with how Jesus describes what it will be like, in some sense, when an individual is confronted with the risen Lord. When people come to faith in Christ, and and Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he's going to have to deny himself. Chase's game plan is over. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Jesus says elsewhere, do you think that I have come to, give, uh, to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. And they will be divided, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. You say, what? What didn't Jesus say that? And what's his point? Why is he wanting all this fighting? He's not saying, I'm coming to create fights. Just know that your life is about to be shaken up if you come to me. That not everyone in your little bubble, if you're not a Christian, is going to come to Christ. And when you come to Christ, your life is going to be on a different path and you're going to collide with people. Paul says, this is what happened to me. I collided with Christ. And my path changed. As we're thinking about our own testimonies, we're saying, well, I've certainly never experienced that. And and you'd be right. In one sense, we've not seen the risen Christ like Paul did, like the apostles, like those first uh, disciples who saw the risen Christ. But I want to point out two details in the text that teach us about who Christ is that has implications for us today. Notice in verse 14 and again in verse 15, Jesus says, I am the one you're persecuting. But how did Paul describe it? I was persecuting people, the saints. I was going into synagogues, into homes, and I was dragging them down to Jerusalem, and I was killing them. That wasn't Jesus, was it? No, it wasn't. But it was Jesus' body, his people, the church. And here's what we learn, and this is is a text that helps us understand who the church is. The church is the body of Christ. And so if we understand this mysterious union, that as Paul says to the Corinthians, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it, we often think, oh yeah, that's a nice little title, we're Christ's body, but in a real sense, we are incorporated in Him. Our life has been hidden with Him. That's where we think of our baptism. We're buried with Christ and risen to new life in Christ. Our whole identity is wrapped up in Him. And it's not just in a a theoretical sense, but in a very real way. We are Christ to people. Not trying to say that in a blasphemous sense. But we experience Christ as we gather together as his body. Look again. 
Paul goes on and he, and he describes, and if your Bible's like mine, it's in the red letter edition, saying Jesus said these things. In verse 16, he gives them instruction. Rise, stand up on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen uh, me and, and those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and, and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul's giving this summary, and he's saying, this is what Jesus said to me. But you know who likely is the one who is speaking? If you go back to Acts chapter 9, it's Ananias who relayed this information to him. And so, Paul isn't trying to squibble over the details right now. Jesus spoke to me. Yes, I saw him, but he doesn't mention Ananias here. His previous two times he does. It doesn't matter because he recognizes that Christ's instruction comes through individuals sometimes. And so you might be thinking about your testimony when you truly came to meet Jesus. Yes, you didn't meet him as you were on a donkey on the way and He physically appeared to you, but He appeared to you through the written Word, did He not? Those of us who have believed and, and know it is the power of God unto salvation, the Gospel, we understand that time when we met Christ. We met Him. And that might have been through your parents sharing the Gospel with you. It might have been you, you sitting in a church service just like this. We've had testimony like that. For I was sitting Sunday after Sunday, and one day I believed. Your, your, a friend shared the gospel with you. You went to summer camp, and you heard Christ call. For me, I grew up in a Christian home. I was in church most Sundays, but my mind was not there. <laughs> I'd hear things, and surely I heard the gospel. I, I don't doubt it. I knew facts about Jesus dying for my sins, but it had no impact until I was 18, sitting in my dorm room, devastated that a girl broke up with me. And all I can think of as I read this passage is, oh, how I had been kicking against the goads, but Jesus had been prodding me along to that moment. For I opened up the Gospel of Matthew and began reading, and for the first time, I met Jesus. I began weeping, and I heard the message afresh and anew. And there was an intimacy that I had never known before. And if you're a Christian, you might, you might say, oh, I don't have that, that moment in time, and, and that's okay. We know theologically it happened at a time, but, but sometimes it's gradual. And I don't even know if it was at that exact moment. I can look back in various moments of my life where I was fighting and wrestling, but there was just the, that was the time I finally relented. And we can share that story of how we came to meet Christ. And what happens after we met Christ? Well, everything's changed, right? Everything's changed, and that's what Paul says in verses 19 through 23 as he describes his life devoted to Christ. We've seen a life devoid of Christ, a life derailed by Christ, and now a life devoted 
to Christ. And, and look at what Paul says to King Agrippa, verse 19. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. In other words, King Agrippa, I've met the risen Lord, the creator of heaven and earth. How could I not change my ways? How could I not submit to this one? And notice that, that he says, I, I'm now obedient to these things. He, he starts relaying now his story. And he says, I now went through Ju Jerusalem, verse 20, throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. You can, you can see my life. It changed. Hopefully we can say that. Look at my life. As I tell this story, there's a walking with Jesus time. Notice how he starts talking about God, verse 22. To this day I have had the help that comes from God. He interprets his world totally different. Do you not, if you're a believer? You look back in your life and you say, I've had the help of God. I was thinking about mine. Oh, how I should have been in the car that night. Oh, how I should not be here. Oh, how this situation could have resulted in that. Oh, that disappointment kept me from going this way. And oh, how the Lord led me. And He protected me. And He preserved me. Not only does He see His world vastly different, but verse, two, um, verse 23 yeah, 22 and 23. He now views the Scriptures totally different, doesn't he? To this day I've had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and to great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that being, being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Pastor Mike read, an account in, in Luke where Jesus is walking with the disciples on the road to Emmaus and he opened up Moses and the prophets and he spoke to them and showed them how all these things spoke of him. Oh, the scriptures have new life. Paul's giving this testimony and we should be thinking, yep, my life has changed. I now, my life is different. And you can begin relaying, hey, you've noticed things have changed. Now let me tell you why. I'm now obedient to his instructions in my life. I once kicked against the goads. You might not want to use that term. That wouldn't have translated to me. But you might say, this is why I worship him. This is why I, 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 I go to church. This is why I'm involved in, in a Bible study. This is why I see the hand of God in my life. This is why I believe the Scriptures speak of Him. And when we give our testimony for evangelistic purposes, it's crucial then that we explain we are a people who have been summoned. That we begin to say, this is why I do all the crazy things that I do in your eyes. This is why I start telling people about Jesus. This is why I'm having this conversation with you now, well, Paul's continuing this conversation and it gets abruptly ended in verse 24 because Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. You're crazy, dude. 
Have you ever had that response? I have. It wasn't as kind. Um, I had some four-letter words given to me from my closest friends. You're crazy, Chase. What has happened to you? This is just a fad. Get over yourself. Whatever's going on, we know you'll change. So how do we, what happens? Well, you might get that response. This is kind of comforting. I mean, a lot of these stories we've been seeing with Paul, people believe. Well, here, no one's believed the last few episodes. But yet, Paul's doing it, and Festus says, you're out of your mind, your great learning has driven you mad. But he says, no, most excellent Festus, verse 25, I'm speaking true and rational words, and that's what we can say to our our friends and our family and those that we, we minister to. I know this might sound crazy, but it's true. This is rational. If you have met the creator of the universe, wouldn't you do the same thing? You can pose that back to them. If this is true, wouldn't you need to give your life to Christ? And if they're rational, they will say you're right, if it's true. Paul turns from Festus, and he turns to Agrippa, and look at what he says. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. Verse 27, O King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? King Agrippa is very well versed in what's going on. His grandfather tried Jesus. His father tried many Christians and had them killed. He killed James. He imprisoned Peter. And because he opposed the God of heaven in Acts 12, worms ate him from the inside out and he dropped dead. You know all about this, don't you, Agrippa? You've heard the stories. I'm telling you, it's true. And this is what I, I met the risen Christ, the one your grandfather crucified, the one that your father uh, opposed, just like I used to oppose. Now, do you believe, Agrippa? Notice how Agrippa responds, verse 28. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? He understands what Paul's using his testimony for. This has now become an evangelism time. You would persuade me? And Paul says, however long it takes, whether short or long, I I pray to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these changes. See, when we share our testimony, that's really just the springboard. You're still going to have to make the jump and say, do you believe? You're going to have to make the jump, and I'm telling you these things so that you might become like me. You might see your life like I see my life in light of Christ. Do you believe? personally found this tactic to be my go-to means of evangelism, especially among people I know. This is usually how I do things. I I play up exactly what Festus charged Paul with. I go to my friends, I say, you probably think I'm nuts now, don't you? They're like, oh no. I was like, it's okay. I'm sure you think I am off my rocker. I would love to take you to lunch and tell you what has happened. Like, all right. 
to tell the story. And the reason I like sharing my testimony is really for four reasons. And this is what I'm closing with. I can speak frankly about sin. I can go to every passage and say, this is what the Bible said about me. Because I know as they hear me, they know this is what the Bible says about them. Two, I can highlight the mercy of Christ. I can talk seriously about sin and then turn and just say and magnify the grace and mercy and love of Christ. I can then explain why I live my life as I do. Why do, do I, have I given myself to the things that I've, I've given? And I can start giving a context for it. And then finally, I can use my testimony as a springboard to let them respond to what they hear. And oftentimes, I just do it like this. I say, hey, do you have any questions? Like, do you ever wonder, like, why Christians believe what they do? And oftentimes, if you've shared this story, you've interacted with them, you've now got the conversation going. And they can ask, well, I do have this one question. Or I've seen you say these things on Facebook. Or I've, I've, I've watched you do this. Why do you do that? Or you might put it as Peter did, what is the reason for the hope that you have? And now I can explain. Maybe the Lord's been burdening, burdening you about sharing Christ. You know, there's a friend, a family member, a coworker, a neighbor, and you just haven't been able to figure out how do I start that conversation. Hopefully, here's one way you can do that. Say, hey, I'd love to have you come over one time. You know that, you know, I go to Oak Park Baptist Church. I love sometimes just to share with you my story. I'd love to hear yours. Okay. Usually, people aren't threatened by that. Now, they might be by the end of the meal. You don't know how they're going to respond. That's not up to you. But if you're hospitable to them and kind and you listen and you let them ask questions, I bet you'll be surprised how effective that may be. Let's pray, and then I'm gonna, we're going to transition to a time of the Lord's Supper, and, uh, and we'll remember our own stories as we remember Christ. Dear Lord, as we are about to share in the table, we're reminded that we've been brought into your body as we take part of the elements that represent your body, that your life was given for us, so that we may be hidden in you. And Lord, I pray for us as, as your body manifested here on 1111 Allison Lane, that those who come in contact with us, whether corporately or individually, that you would use this church and these members to present you to others. And that you would derail their life in the most positive sense, so that their life may be devoted to you. That is our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.